the volume. Soup with Coop is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, there is a contest for every fan. FanDuel. More ways to win. In the history of the world, there is no sportscaster more decorated than Bob Costas. And for him to agree to share a little soup with me this afternoon is an absolute treat. Bob, welcome to Soup with Coop. Thank you, Coop. You know, I notice that you have a bowl there that's roughly the size of Gulliver's bowl. <laughs> I mean, what the heck? You can yes. have not just a bowl of soup. That's like a vat of soup. Well, when you do this at noon, I'm, I get hungry. and I can't put just yeah. a sandwich right here with me with looking delicate. So I just I just really load up on the on the split pea today. And that was your so choice. That was my choice. I got my split pea right here. You'll, you'll notice I have a matching bowl sort of matches the color. Now, mm-hmm. is, split, is split pea your go-to soup? Because it is the first time anyone has ever chosen split pea on this I uh, do, on the show. I do like I do like split pea, but of a very a very good a very good tomato bisque, nice French onion soup. The Garden District, you'll get some good French onion soup. You know that. Um, so there you go. You know, I've done a little work. Being that's the first time I've ever. Um, shared split pea soup with someone of your stature. So I want to be prepared and let you know a couple little data points about split pea in case you didn't know. Obviously, it doesn't surprise me that you like it because it's, uh, you know, it's low cost and yet high in nutritional value. So I want you to know that it's very popular in a lot of cultures. But in Britain, Bob, you may not know this, mm. peas is used as the singular and plural form of the word, pea. So like- Really? Like, Yes. Yeah, so I was like a deer or a bison or a sheep or a peas is in case you want to go British on me. Um, just, I just don't want you to be political, you know. You know, it's another thing that, that the, the Brits say. We say if, heaven forbid, someone is ill, they're in the hospital, even though there's many more than one hospital. We say they're in the hospital, but right. the Brits say they're in hospital. Hmm. There's no the. That's true. Now, if we were in Canada, your split pea soup would be yellow because they use a, a, a little more of a yellow pea. Which, yes, uh, and, and I've had that on occasion. I was, yeah. Well, what, what, would, what would bring you to Canada to have yellow pea soup? Uh, uh, Olympics, perhaps? Toronto, Toronto Blue Jays, when I was doing baseball for NBC in the 80s, and I think I even did one game for the Major League Baseball Network there a couple of years ago. I, I can't say that my first destination upon crossing the border is to go to a restaurant and find some yellow pea soup. That would not be true. But I believe I've had yellow pea soup in one place or another. I've seen it. I can't say for sure if it was in Toronto or Montreal, but I've seen it. Bob, I'd like just to talk about growing up. I mean, obviously, you've, you're a sports fan because you're – your resume is uh, is littered with every single sport. You've been on the microphone, been a part of every basketball, baseball, football, boxing, horse racing, hockey, on and on, golf. Uh, were you a, a sports junkie from the get-go? Could you not get yeah. enough? Yeah, I really was. You know, just like almost every other kid in the neighborhood, uh, my earliest recollections are late 50s and then into the 60s. 
We used to buy baseball cards, not as an investment. I see that just last week, somebody bought a 1952 Mickey Mantle for $5.2 million. You know, a Topps baseball pack had five cards and a stick of bubble gum in it, and it cost a nickel. You could buy the entire box of 20 cards for a dollar, and they only had sentimental value. We flipped them. We traded them. If you had, you'd never use a Mickey Mantle or a Hank Aaron or a Willie Mays for this purpose, but if you had an extra Hector Lopez or Jerry Lumpy, you put them on the spoke of your bike, spokes of your bike, and when you pedaled around the neighborhood, it made that cool little clipping sound. You know, so that's what baseball cards were to us. And, you know, baseball was my favorite. Then came football, and then eventually basketball and hockey. Uh, the first job for which I was ever paid was broadcasting hockey when I was still a senior at Syracuse University in the old Eastern Hockey League. $30 a game, $5 a day meal money on the road, a bus league, the actual league that the Paul Newman movie Slapshot was based on. I knew guys who were extras in the movie. And I'm going to put that aside for a minute. We'll come back to that because it's a really good story. But as a kid, yeah, I, I was a sports fan like everybody else in the neighborhood. You know, playing baseball, we'd imitate guys' stances. Who am I now? Who am I now? You know, uh, and I couldn't, maybe this was not true of every other kid, but it was true of me. <clears throat> I couldn't shoot baskets in the driveway or throw a rubber ball off the stoop or off a handball wall and make believe that I was playing a baseball game without hearing the announcers in my head. So the announcers were inseparable, even from the time that I was a little kid, inseparable in my mind uh, from the games themselves. Was there a particular announcer that you really loved and mimicked or had a big impact on you? Well, the Yankees reigned. When, when I first was learning baseball, the Dodgers and uh, Giants had gone to the West Coast. The Mets didn't exist yet. So the Yankees not only were the only team in New York, they were in the World Series every year. And Mickey Mantle was the best player in the American League. So Mantle became my guy. The Yankees were my team. And Mel Allen and Red Barber, two of the greatest ever, were their announcers. So I listened to Mel. I listened to Red. Uh, they had those pleasing voices with a little bit of a southern twang to it, as Ernie Harwell did, as Lindsey Nelson did. There were a lot of guys in that era of broadcasting that had Southern roots. And there's something sort of honey-coated about that sound, uh, very, very pleasing. And when I was nine, 10 years old, for about a year and a half, we lived in California, in Southern California. So I listened to Vin Scully. Almost none of the Dodger games were on television, but I listened to Vin on the radio. And he gave the game a melody. I mean, there was a narrative thread when Vin called it that's unlike the way anybody else has ever done it. Maybe some of us have approached it, but no one has ever reached that level where he brought, he just brought everything together. Command of language, the lilt of his voice, the ability to be matched to the pace and rhythm of the game, to put a narrative thread through it, the storytelling plus the accurate calls of the plays themselves. I mean, he... He had every club in the bag to mix sports. You know, a guy can win major tournaments if he's the best at a few things and decent at the others. He was the best at every club in the bag. You know, and that's that's amazing that Vin, your admiration for him and, and uh, obviously recognizing how talented he was. And there's no one who doesn't just absolutely adore Vin Scully. But for him mm -hmm. to say about you, 
that there isn't anyone in our business who can express themselves better with the best choice of words and a great idea than Bob Costas. If I had to have somebody explain a very highly technical problem to me, I would select Bob Costas. He is absolutely brilliant. That is, uh, that's pretty high praise for a kid who is admiring him from afar out on the West Coast, just tuning yeah. in the radio. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, Vin, Vin has always been great to me in a sense. We were colleagues uh, at NBC in the 80s. Tony Kubek and I were doing uh, the 1A game and Joe Garagiola and Vin were doing the A game. And then when it got to the postseason, if we had the World Series, then I would host the pregame show and Vin and Joe would do the game. So in that sense, we were colleagues, but I actually got to know Vin better over the last 20 years or so when he was still doing Dodger games. Uh, and then our friendship became closer. And when he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom four years ago, it was the last uh, Medal of Freedom ceremony in Barack Obama's White House. And it was an incredible collection of people. Um, and I'm gonna leave some people out. Kareem, Michael Jordan, Bill and Melinda Gates, Ellen DeGeneres, Cicely Tyson, Robert Redford, Tom Hanks, um, Bruce Springsteen, Vin Scully, and there were some others. Um, and he was kind enough to invite me and my wife, Jill, to the ceremony. So we had dinner in D.C. the night before, and then we were in the East Room of the White House when this amazing ceremony unfolded. And one of my favorite stories connected to it, and you can't tell this story, Cooper, without dropping names. So we're all kind of standing in a, almost shoulder to shoulder in some room outside the East Room before they lead us in. And I'm talking to Tom Hanks. And so Hanks is here and he can see over my shoulder and I can't see what's happening behind me. So Tom and I are making small talk and he says, hey, what do you think this conversation's like? And I look, and over in a corner, separated from everybody else, Bruce Springsteen and Vin Scully. What are these two guys talking about? And so Hank says, what, what do you think the conversation's like? And I said, I'll take a crack at it, Tom. You know, Bruce, I loved greetings from Asbury Park, but you really hit it out of the park with darkness on the edge of town. Foul, back to the screen, two and two. You know, another quote, just to quote someone that kind of even, I guess it just makes a lot of sense. John Stewart said, you speak like people write. And that's, uh, <laughs> you know, are you are you a good writer, Bob? Pretty good. Yeah, I would think so. Pretty good. Um, and one of the small keys, you know, not gonna go in a time capsule, didn't change the course of Western civilization. But if I was able to do something um, better than most broadcasters can, I could ad lib in and around a script and people wouldn't know which part I was reading off the prompter and which part I had just ad lib parenthetically. Um, and very often, even when I'm writing a script, uh, I can pace around the room and dictate it to uh, the researcher or whoever's helping out, and I can think in paragraphs uh, and dictate it that way. Um, that's part of what being a broadcaster is, at least being a certain kind of broadcaster. Uh, it isn't just getting the facts straight, which you want to do, and being knowledgeable and making good observations. 
but you should be able to phrase things at least a little bit more artfully than in normal conversation. But that's hard to do when you're in a World Series game and, and it's a bottom of the ninth scenario and someone hits a home run and to kind of deliver the moment, but also step back and say how important this is or what this means. It, that's, you know, doing that live and, and then being able to scribble it down before are two different animals and to be able to combine yeah. those two is remarkable. Well, that's why the very best of the best, Vin Scully, Al Michaels, Dick Enberg, in his own way, <clears throat> um, Jim Nance, especially on golf, although you do have time to think about it on golf because things don't happen as come at you as quickly. Jim McKay, uh, back in the day, uh, Wide World of Sports and the Olympics for ABC, Jack Whitaker as an essayist, and some of those essays he wrote, but others in the aftermath of a Kentucky Derby or something, he's doing it off the top of his head. I always admired the people who had a bit of a literate touch. So as a very, very young, fresh out of college, um, fresh, fresh out of Syracuse, get the chance to broadcast ABA NBA game, you know, yeah. the spirit of St. Louis. And I was kind of looking at this roster. Would you say you were probably more prepared than a, a graduate this, this time of year coming out of Syracuse because of the quality of people you were listening to, as opposed to the just fill space and shock jock type mentality that people are accustomed to. It might take years for a, a fresh graduate to kind of, unlearn all the nonsense and get back to real quality to become thoughtful and um, you know a real impactful broadcaster as opposed to just time filling. Yeah. Well, my early influences go back half a century, maybe more. And therefore, you're talking about people who were born, in many cases, toward the beginning of the 20th century. People who actually, when they were born, broadcasting didn't exist. They came out of an entirely different sensibility. You know, when they were kids, many of them, there's no radio, there's no television. You know, when Red Barber was 10 years old, he couldn't say, I want to be a broadcaster. The thing didn't exist. So they came out of different, out of a different sensibility. Uh, as a generalization, generalization, they read more. They weren't bombarded with uh, small soundbite things and, and little things coming at them from every electronic and technical direction. And I'm not trying to sound like a get off my lawn guy. You know, it's all good if you use it wisely. Uh, but if you're just kind of bombarded with it and you can't differentiate uh, what's worthwhile from what's not, um, then, then it's harder to kind of have the, the sort of approach that the broadcasters that we grew up uh, appreciating had. Um, when I got to St. Louis, though, the first two jobs I had, the Syracuse Blazers of the Eastern Hockey League and the Spirits of St. Louis of the ABA, those teams were crazy and the leagues in which they played were completely crazy. And I knew at the time that it was nuts, but it was only through the rearview mirror that I realized that the two most wonderfully absurd experiences I ever had, <laughs> I'd had by the time I was 24 years old. Everything else was relatively tame for the next 40 years or, or more. Um, the Spirits had an incredible roster. Uh, they never played up to their capabilities except for one weird burst where they managed to 
upset Dr. J and the defending champion Nets in the playoffs, but they had gone 30 and 50 during the regular season and they'd lost every game they played against the Nets. And then they beat them four straight after losing the first game of that playoff series. But apart from that, it was just kind of a clown show. Um, Marvin Barnes, the late Marvin Barnes, was a great player, an All-American at Providence, where he played with Ernie D. Gregorio, who went on to lead the uh, NBA in assists and free throw shooting uh, a couple of times. They went to the Final Four one year, and Marvin was the second player taken in both the NBA draft and the ABA draft after only Bill Walton in both cases. So that's how good a player he was. If he had stayed on the straight and narrow, which probably was impossible given his personality and, and background. But if he had stayed on the straight and narrow, I have no doubt that he would have been a Hall of Fame player. And he was a great player for a very short period of time. Anyway, he was kind of an irrepressible character. So many stories connected to him, but here's one. We play the Kentucky Colonels in Louisville and lose as we usually did at Freedom Hall. They had Artis Gilmore and Dan Issel and Louis Dampier. Hubie Brown was their coach. So we lose. Teams didn't fly by charter then. So we meet at the airport the next morning, and the trainer who doubled as the traveling secretary hands out the itinerary. And it says, TWA flight 305. Depart Louisville, 8 a.m. Arrive St. Louis, 756. <laughs> Marvin beckons me over. He's got the itinerary in his hand. He drapes his arm over my shoulder and looks down from more than a foot above me. And he goes, bro, do you see this? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. <laughs> when, when I tell people this story, they think that he was like dumb and confused, yeah. but no, he knew that was funny and he knew that I would get it. <laughs> so he, he decided I better tell Bob instead of Fly Williams over here. Yeah. He had a better chance with a punchline to land. Syracuse Blazers, all right? <clears throat> Think of the movie Slapshot. There's Love. a character, it, it's, it, there aren't that many great hockey movies. You know, there's, it's not one of the sports that has a, a, a large filmography, but that's at the top of the list. The Hanson brothers and the whole thing. And I knew guys who were extras in the film, and which was written by the uh, by the sister of a of a guy who had played in the Eastern Hockey League, uh, Nancy Dowd. His name was Ned Dowd, and he was in the movie. Um, and I think he may have played the character of Ogie Oglethorpe. Ogie Oglethorpe, the enforcer, the crazy guy in Slapshot, is directly based on Bill Harpo Goldthorpe of the Syracuse Blazers. He was our enforcer and he lived just for mayhem on the ice. He wasn't a bad player, but he just loved to fight and he seldom lost. So as you might imagine, at least in the early going, he had little use for me because if a barroom brawl broke out, I probably would be the least useful guy uh, that was connected to the team. So I'm reading, we're writing on the bus from Syracuse to Johnstown. And I'm reading the New York Times, minding my own business. I'm in the, in the row in front of him, reading the New York Times. And that alone ticked him off. So he reaches over my shoulder. He rips the paper out of my hands. He stands up in the aisle of the bus. He rips it into shreds and lets it fall on the floor like New Year's Eve confetti, right? And now the players are looking around and everything. 
And I'm, I'm 21 years old. I'm thinking, I can't let this pass. I got to stand up for myself. I say, hey, Goldie, don't be jealous. I'll teach you to read. That did not help the situation even a little bit. He grabs me. He lifts me up out of my seat. I probably weighed 130, dripping wet at that point. He slams me up against the wall of the moving bus. And now all the players are looking around, what's Goldie going to do? Because he was nuts. He might have done anything. He reaches up into the rack and pulls down a hacksaw, which the players use to trim their sticks. He puts the hacksaw under my chin. Now, I know even in this moment of peril that he really doesn't intend to decapitate me, but I also know he's not the kind of guy that would have taken into account all the dynamics of the situation. What if the bus hits a pothole, it (laughs) veers on the road to avoid a deer or something on the New York Thruway? Anything could happen. And I see out of the corner of my eye, there's like a makeshift SWAT team making its way from the front to the back because the veteran players by seniority and the coaches, one coach and a trainer, sat at the front. So they're making their way back and they're trying to talk them down. Goldie, Goldie, put the hacksaw down, put Bob down. And after what seemed like an eternity, it was probably just 30 seconds, he lets, he lets me go. But after that, he treated me better because I think I earned some weird measure of respect from him. Okay, fast forward many, many years. And I tell that story that I just told you to Jay Leno on The Tonight Show. The next day, my phone rings. Hey, Bobby, I saw you last night with Jay Leno all night. Well, I love you, but you know I love you, Bobby. We had such a great <laughs> time. You were my pal, blah, blah, blah. Okay, two, two years or so ago, a memoir comes. He writes the, his, his memoir, The Most Penalized Man in Hockey, Arrested More Than 40 Times, Banned for Life from Six Different Leagues, including a senior league, which showed that he hadn't mellowed uh, when he got into his 40s or whatever. <laughs> and it goes without saying, who wrote the foreword to Goldie's book? Soup with Coop is proud to be presented by FanDuel. Never played FanDuel Fantasy before? Great. FanDuel is offering users the chance to play free, no deposit required, with a free entry to an NBA contest. Plus, for those who want to deposit, FanDuel is offering up to a $500 bonus instantly when you make your first deposit with our 20% deposit match. Why do you play on FanDuel? FanDuel Fantasy is an easy-to-use app. Pick a new team every game. Different and unique contests across sports in relation to your skill level. Compete against your friends in head-to-head matchups. FanDuel is offering users the chance to play free, no deposit required, with a free entry to an NBA contest. And FanDuel is offering up to a $500 bonus instantly when you make your first deposit with our 20% deposit match. Go to FanDuel.com forward slash cowherd to sign up today. That is FanDuel.com forward slash cowherd so they know we sent you. FanDuel, more ways to win. I want to talk about Mickey Mantle. My my dad loves Mickey Mantle, and by default, I love Mickey Mantle. And I know you've have a um, grew up with a you know loving him and carry his baseball card. And then to fast forward in your life and have your hero all of a sudden you're get to be close with him and speaking at his eulogy is is pretty amazing. Most people don't have that 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 dream yeah. come true. 
of sort of being able to be friends with your hero. Um, I'm just, what was it about Mickey back then? And it's, what's interesting also is there were only 16 teams in Major League Baseball. So you, you yeah. knew it was a lot easier to know everybody. Would Mickey, what was Mickey like? And then how do you think if Mickey was coming on the scene today, would he be adored or would he be uh, in big trouble in the world we live in today? Well, I'll take the last part first. Um, if he came on the scene today, it's a different landscape. There'd be more sophisticated surgery for his knee injuries and whatnot. So he'd, he'd recover better. His career would have been longer and more importantly, his prime would have been longer. He was done as a great player by the time he was 33 years old. Um, and did Mickey run around and, and, you know, not take perfect care of himself? Yeah, but if he was as valuable a property now as then, the investment the team would have in him, he'd be making $25, $30 million a year. The sophisticated training, the incentive to, to modify your habits, which not everybody does successfully, but most, most guys do. They realize that the upside, you can, you can put some of this stuff aside until after you're done playing, if you're going to ever do it at all. Just the influences would have been different. And the rough comparison would be to a guy like Mike Trout now. Um, although wow. Trout is not a switch hitter. Uh, they're roughly comparable. Their statistics are very close through the same number um, of seasons. But his effect on the country would not have been the same. First of all, he goes to the Yankees. He succeeds Joe DiMaggio in center field. He's part of that lineage of Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio, and his teammates include Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford. And the Yankees are in the World Series 12 times in his first 14 seasons, 12 times. So for a national audience, that's baseball. The Gillette theme comes on, and Mel Allen is broadcasting the game, and the whole nation is seeing the Yankees. They're a national team, love them or, or hate them. And... <clears throat> he kind of was the model for the natural. You've probably interviewed every single person you ever wanted to. Did anyone not want, did you, did you want to interview someone that never, never wanted to do it? Or did you ever want to interview someone that just maybe was before your time that you would have enjoyed spending some time with? Oh my gosh. The, the one person in sports that I wish I had known, let alone interviewed, would have been Jackie Robinson, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. He died in 1972. I was still in college. Uh, I do know his his widow, Rachel, um, one of his sons, David, I've interviewed, and, and Sharon Robinson, his, his daughter, uh, but I never knew Jackie, so that would have been very high on the list. Um, I did interview DiMaggio. He was always very nice to me. Sandy Koufax is someone that you never really see Sandy sit down and do a lengthy interview. And I respect him for that. The couple of times that I've asked him, he always responded to me personally, not through someone else, always said, you know, if I was ever going to do it, I'd do it with you. But I came to realize that was like being first in a line that never moves. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's no better than being the last person in, in the queue. But I think that Sandy is, a genuinely shy guy um, and also understands that when you had the kind of career he had, both excellent and elegant, 
There's nothing to add. It speaks for itself. The legend is better just kind of left alone, but it gives you an insight into him to relate this. About five or six years ago, there was a vote for the four greatest living players, uh, sort of the Mount Rushmore of baseball. And those players were Johnny Bench, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Koufax. So I call Koufax. They're going to introduce them at the All-Star game. We call Koufax and I say, Sandy, this isn't about you. It's about the four guys of which you are one. Under those circumstances, he says, sure, because it's not, the focus is not primarily on him. And he was so good and so fascinating. And the four of them were so appreciative of each other and they bounced off each other. I didn't have to do anything except like toss a batting practice fastball out there. And then they, they took it from there. So I admire Sandy for that. Um, Outside sports, everybody wanted to interview J.D. Salinger. uh, But J.D. Salinger was, forget about reclusive, he was practically a hermit. Um, Wouldn't answer any of his mail, nothing. So there was no chance. I mean, that was was like... uh, Moby Dick and Ahab, whoever, whoever could have gotten, whoever could have gotten J.D. Salinger could have retired the, uh, the trophy for the rest of their career, but nobody ever got him. Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson had this philosophy, always had it. I'm a movie star, says Jack. People, different era, people plunk down their money and they see me on a big screen. If I'm on the small screen, it blows that mystique away. I'm not going to step across that line. And when you think about it, the only time you ever saw him on TV, is like sitting courtside at a Laker game. Even Johnny Carson couldn't get Jack to come on like in the last few months of Johnny's tenure on the Tonight Show. All right. So I've got to clean this story up. 1992 NBA Finals, Portland and the Bulls. Nicholson is in Chicago shooting the biopic Hoffa, okay? Of course, he's a huge basketball fan. So I see him, he's sitting along the baseline. He's at the game after a day of shooting. Terry O'Neill is producing the game for NBC. He says to me, Mar- Marv is doing the game with, uh, I forget, Magic or, or the Czar, Mike Fratello, somebody. But Marv Albert's doing the game. I'm doing the pregame in the halftime. Terry says, do you know Jack Nicholson? I say, a a little. He says, go down and ask him if he'll come on with you at halftime. I said, Terry, this is a fool's errand. He wouldn't go on with Johnny Carson. He's not going to go on with us at halftime. He says, you owe it to us. Go ask him. Oh, my gosh. All right, so now I got to traipse down. It's It's the old... Chicago Stadium before they opened the United Center. I got to go down through a trap door and off the trellis and around and around the the ramps and everything and down to uh, the court. And I wait for a timeout with like four minutes to go in the second quarter. And I come up behind him and I tap him on the shoulder. And he turns like the scene in The Shining when you see his face (laughs) comes around like that, you know? And, and there's like this steely look on his face. And then it softens when he sees me. And, you know, you asked if I could do impressions. I really can't. But he goes, oh, hi, Bob. And I go, Jack, Jack, they're watching. Just play along. I'm supposed to ask you if you'll come on with us at halftime. And he says, this is verbatim, except for the bleep. Bobby, Bobby, you're a nice kid. You do good work. How can I put this nicely? 
no effing way. <laughs> <laughs> Except he didn't say effing. Yes. Well, I can assure you, Bob, when we asked you to be on suit with Coot, we expected a similar response. So <laughs> I, I am very grateful for you joining us. As always, when we finish our soup, we always rate it from one to a thousand. So if you wouldn't mind having a sip and say from one to a thousand, how does a split pea tasting today? It's cooled a little. I wouldn't say it's restaurant quality. <laughs> it was out of the can. In honor of your dad's favorite and my favorite, Mickey Mantle, I'm gonna rate it out of a thousand, 777. Well, Robert Quinlan Costas, I thank you, my friend. Thanks, Cooper. See ya.